The Book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet. Rather, it's a story about a prophet a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. 
The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel, and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange, watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer, where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him, and he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong, or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that you would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill, waiting to see what might happen. You know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there, in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God, again, asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. 
He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. And here you thought it was just about a fish, right? It's important for us to capture the, the bigger picture of what we, what we engage in Scripture, and that's one of the reasons it's important to know that there are different genres of, the, of, of types of narratives and types of language that are used in the Bible, and this is what we would call satire. And we don't read it that way, but it is, because some of the stuff that you read in the book of Jonah is ridiculous, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But what I, I want us to focus in on today is that what, what you see unfold for Jonah and what you see unfold for Nineveh is something that unfolds in our lives all the time. And the way that we respond to it determines everything about our future. So the concept is this. I mean, you see the title today is called Collision Course. And that's because the way that God works in our lives is there's those moments where we encounter him. It could be the first time we've come to them, but there's other times we encounter him where there's this collision by God's intention in our life to get our attention about something very important. And then we have this question to ourselves, how will I respond to what God is doing or saying in my life right now? So you saw that little, that little phrase that they talked about that really means two things, overturned or turned over. And that's the response. Do we respond by being overturned, which means being destroyed or not really being changed, but are we turned over, which means that we are actually becoming new? I'll put it in this, this way. I've seen in my life, and I see this is true in so many people's lives, that when we encounter God in a real way, there's one of two things that happen in terms of our response. The first one is that we get rocked by God. Something happens in our life. We know that God is at work, but we are, we are jolted into kind of this reality of what's happening. But the outflow of that is that we're just simply rocked, but we're never changed. We're never ruined. We're the same person. We go through something, and we come out the other side the same. For example, when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, and if you're familiar with that story, so he goes through the, the list of the law and says he's kept all that since he was young, and, and he's wanting to know, how do I get this thing called eternal life? And so finally Jesus levels with him and says, listen, you lack one thing. You need to sell your possessions and give your money to the poor. And if you know the end of that story, what does it say? It says that young man walked away sad. He was rocked by Jesus in this encounter, but he wasn't ruined because he walked away the same person as that he had first encountered Jesus. Then you have the other side of that, which is Peter. 
So Peter's encounter, initial encounter with Jesus is this collision course. So Peter is fishing all night. He catches nothing. He comes onto the shore. Jesus tells him, a carpenter, not a fisherman, a carpenter says, listen, go throw the nets on the other side of the boat and you'll catch. And Peter goes, fine. Out of obligation, he does it. He catches more fish than he's ever caught in his life. And when he gets back to the shore, what's Peter's response to Jesus? He actually says, go away from me because I'm sinful. I see who you are, and we know from that point on, Peter followed Jesus. What happened to Peter is that Jesus ruined him. He ruined him from any other life that he could live, and so because of that, Peter became different where the rich young ruler didn't. And the same thing is true here. Jonah has an encounter with God, but does anything change for him? Well, we'll want to look at that today. So what I want to begin with is we're going to jump to a number of all, there's four chapters in the different chapters here in this book, Uh, but I want to begin with What happens to us and what happened to Jonah is what I would describe as having a callous heart. That you you and I began to stop feeling towards other people or even feeling towards God in our life because of the way that we respond to things or the way we respond to God. And so I want to highlight from this passage from Jonah's journey, and I think it reflects in ours too, how that happens in our life. And you can start by looking at the first chapter, verses 1 through 3, and the first sign of this callous heart, which doesn't allow us to really be ruined by Jesus and to be changed, is that we have a distance from God and from people. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So what is Jonah doing? His first response is, now we know later, obviously, why he's doing this, but he thinks he can get away from God because he doesn't like what God's asked him to do, and he thinks he can get away from Nineveh. He can distance himself from his enemies and the people he doesn't like, and he can distance himself from God, which you saw from the video, is very humorous because why in the world would you get in a boat when you know that you serve the God of the sea? It doesn't make any sense. So Jonah's trying to create this distance. And I think for us, we, we don't, we do, this kind of story doesn't literally unfold in our lives. We don't run necessarily physically from the other, the other direction from where God has called us, but what we do is that we create obstacles and barriers from God and us and from other people. We become distant because we don't want to have to deal with what's there. We don't want to have to really hear what God's saying, and we don't want to deal with people around us. We would rather live isolated lives in a bubble, and that's what happens to a lot of us over time. The longer you follow Jesus, the more isolated our lives become. And what's reinforced in that in our lives that we have to be very careful of is that we live in a city that is built on isolation, We live in a suburb. We do not live in an actual city, city like Los Angeles. We live in a suburb. And a suburb is based on this reality. I move away from the city because I want to be left alone. I want a little bit more space. I want to go and commute into a city, but I want to live so I can be by myself and isolated. How many know that's true? Three of you, the rest of you are being dishonest. That's the concept of a suburb. That's Simi Valley. And if you don't think that's true, think about the rhythm of our life. I, this has really came clear to me how I know I, one of the things I refuse to and try hard to do is not to live in the rhythm of what our city has, which is to be isolated from people. And when we first moved here, we ended up living on the east side of town, and we were renting a house, and just recently, last five months, we bought a house, and now we're on the west side of town. But to see what had happened and seeing the difference in neighborhoods in our city is amazing. So when we moved to the east side of town, we found a really ridiculously low rent in a very nice area in our city. So we jumped on it. So we're living in a, in a, in a neighborhood that 
economically, we don't fit with anybody else we, because this is more uh, kind of an upper-end neighborhood in, in Simi Valley. But it's really interesting because nobody in that area really cared to talk to anybody else. Everybody liked to be left alone. That was the whole concept of that neighborhood. And so Kim and I and, and Courtney and Jordan tried really hard to try to engage with our neighbors. You know, and, and I remember one time my neighbor who I hadn't seen didn't even know if he was alive if anyone lived in the house was like chasing his trash can down the street as the wind was blowing. And so I chased him down to try to like introduce myself. And I remember he tried to avoid me. We were the only two on the street and he tried to get around me without introducing himself. And I'm like, no, you're not getting by me, man. And so that was kind of the whole concept. And in everything that we did, it's like we would reach out to people. And we would, you know, we'd, we'd, at Christmas time, we'd make cookies. At Halloween, we'd do garage parties. We're like in our neighborhood. And people just want to be left alone. The whole concept was this. And we all feel this way, I know, because I had people after first service tell me this. We love the invention of the automatic garage door opener. We do. Simi Valley lives off that. You drive into your house, and you click the button, and your garage door comes up, and then you drive in, and you click it again, and you don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> and I realized over a few years, that started to become me in our neighborhood, even though we had tried, and even my frustration. And I remember getting to the point where I was fine with just clicking that remote and going in and letting it close behind me and thinking, okay, I'm home. I don't need to worry about what's happening outside. Then we moved, and when we moved... We had prayed and said, okay, Lord, we want to move from where we are. We want to move into a neighborhood. We want to be in a neighborhood where people actually are out and they talk to each other and they engage with each other. And so God moved us to a neighborhood. And this is interesting. The first couple of weeks, we went from living at a very kind of quiet, uh, kind of up the hill kind of feeling to down in the valley with, we live on a corner and there's traffic and people are always out walking around and we're in this complex. And so there's people everywhere. And I remember the first two weeks, I'm like, oh, I wish we could move back to the east side. All these people. And then God reminded me, yeah, remember why you moved here? So you weren't so isolated anymore. And I remember that. I thought, oh, and and so the rhythm of life has completely changed for us. And I love our neighborhood because people are not afraid to talk. There's There's no bubble or barrier in our neighborhood because all the houses are really close. And when you live on a corner and you're out in the front, the wonderful thing about moving is we lost our gardener who was a part of that rental we were in. And now I'm the gardener again. So I spend three to four to five hours sometimes in our front yard every Saturday. And you would not believe the conversations they have. That sometimes is like, I really need to mow my lawn. It's like, can you stop talking? I don't really say that, but you know how you feel like that. Anybody want to admit you feel that way? But it's like people are everywhere, and it's awesome. And I realized this is exactly why I moved. Why? Because I had to get out of the bubble that we were in, the barriers that had been built in culture and in my life from being accessible to people who are right outside my front door. And so now a week doesn't go by when I don't talk to at least three or four of my neighbors, and if not more than once, because you're out and people talk and you engage, and it's just amazing. But how many of us like that lifestyle where we just kind of want to just hang out? I want to kind of be left alone. I work really hard, and I don't want to be bothered by the neighborhood or the person who lives upstairs who has really heavy feet or whoever it is. You just want to be left alone. That's what Jonah wanted. And that's not what God wanted because God cared and loved the people of Nineveh. Second thing, second sign of a callous heart is that we actually become angry toward God's mercy and grace, especially in the lives of other people. So listen, go over to chapter 4. The passage used to be up on the screen for you. But verse 1, chapter 4, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. This is after the Nineveh has repented, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is slightly dramatic. But do you hear what he's saying? This is why I didn't leave home. This is why I never wanted to, to go to Nineveh in the first place, because I knew if I showed up here, you'd actually do what you do, which is you show grace and mercy to people. And I didn't want you to do that. And he's mad at God for God caring for people. Now, most of us think, well, that would never be me. I would never do that. But you know, one of the things that happens in our life is that we get stuck in this kind of dualistic reality, which is if somebody wins here, somebody loses here. We only, we say win-win, but we don't really mean win-win. We mean win-lose. Because when there's a winner, there's always a loser. But the way God works is that there's just winners. When it comes to his grace and mercy, they're just winners. And that's why I think sometimes it's difficult for us when we see somebody experiencing a touch of God's grace in their life, and maybe we feel like that's lacking in our lives, it's very difficult for us to take joy in what they're experiencing. Because there's part of us that's thinking, they're winning, but I'm losing over here. It's not fair. God, why hasn't you done that for me? Why doesn't that come to me? Why to them? Why not me? And we, it, we don't have the capacity to actually take joy in the fact that God's blessing somebody. God's doing a deep work in their life. We should take joy in that. But we lose sight of that. Why? Because we think that it's only win-lose and not win-win. So I got to play this commercial. It came out a number of years ago. But this captures, I think, our feeling when somebody else gets something that either we think we deserve or we don't want them to have, I want you just to look at the face of the guy in this commercial, and you might relate to the way he's feeling in this scenario. Go ahead, take a look at this. This man is about to be the millionth customer. I go ahead of you. Instead, we had someone go ahead of him and win fifty thousand dollars. Congratulations! You are our one millionth customer. Nobody likes to miss out. That's why Ally treats all their customers the same, whether you're the first or the millionth. If your bank doesn't think you're special anymore, you need an ally. Ally Bank. Your money needs an ally. So can you feel it? Seriously, can you see it on his face? Anybody feel that way? Totally like, what in the world? I let you cut in front of me and now you're winning $50,000. That's my $50,000. And that's the same thing we do with God's grace and mercy. We can't take joy in somebody else's celebration because we want that for ourselves. And so for, for Jonah, there's no joy in what Nineveh is experiencing because he's angry because God is giving them what he doesn't think they deserve. And how many times in our life do we become so callous that that becomes our experience? And then there's a third point that we have to understand about our callous heart, and that's in the remainder of chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, and that is that our concern for comfort becomes more than our concern for people. Verse 6 says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked, and he asked that it might, he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. It's a recurring theme with Jonah. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And shall not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What's going on there? Do you see this? This is Jonah's not even seeing it, but God has just painted a vivid picture for him. You are angry to the point of death over this little plant that grew up overnight and provided shade for you, but then it dies in a moment, and now you're uncomfortable. You're too hot, and you're, you're so consumed with your comfort that you're actually wanting to die to be out of discomfort. Yet, sitting in front of you is a city of 100, over 120,000 people who are completely lost without me, God would say to Jonah, and yet you have no concern for them. That is, is a pretty stark contrast that I think we have to come to grips with. If you were here a few weeks ago, we were in Amos, and we talked about the concept of comfort, and how comfort can put us to sleep. And ultimately, sometimes what we don't realize is comfort becomes our goal in life. We do everything to maintain our comfort level. Everything from the job that we work to the house that we live in, the car that we drive. We do it when we build buildings. If we didn't have air conditioning in here, I'm sure we'd have five or six complaints after. It's hot in there. Can we please get some? What is that based on? When I come to church, I need to be comfortable. That's the concept. So God's painting this picture for Jonah, and he's, he's not getting it. He's not seeing it. But I want us to think about that more specifically for our context. When we look at the city that we live in, so obviously our context is Simi Valley. You may live in Moore Park or Thousand Oaks or Chatsworth or wherever you live. But that's your context. When you look at the city around you, is your primary goal in your city to be comfortable? So you live there and, and because you want to be comfortable and because of that, anything in your city that gets in the way of your comfort becomes something that you get angry about or that you push aside. That happens to us. So moment of transparency for you to kind of get back kind of the backstory on what I've been processing through. So very, I'm going to be just honest with you. So, living in Simi Valley for about three and a half, almost four years now, I have been praying that God would break my heart for our city. And I'll be honest with you, it hasn't happened yet. Do I love Simi Valley? Yeah, I love living here. I love our church. But my heart doesn't break over our city. I don't weep over Simi Valley. And I've been asking God, that has to happen in me. Not just in me, and it's not just for pastors. It's for any person who's a follower of Jesus that lives in a context when we're surrounded by people that many, in many, many cases, don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know Jesus. And do, our, do we weep over the city that we live in? Does our heart break when we see tragedy hit our city or when people go through struggle? Do we feel the weight of our city or do we just live here? And I've been grappling with this a lot. And every time I come in from the west side or the east side and I come into our city, I try to remember to pray, especially coming in, down off of Santa Susana Pass. And you see the valley. This is the valley that God's called me to. And so my heart should break when I see the city. So let's just take a moment and just think about this. Let me just ask you some questions about your context. Obviously, the majority context is Simi Valley. When you think of your city, is the city that you live in just the place that you happen to live. So maybe you're a commuter, and so you commute out, and then you come back in. It's just, this is just where I happen to live. It, it kind of fit. It was close to work, or close to where I wanted to be, and so this is where I landed in this city. So it's so all it is to me, it's just the place I live. It's nothing more than that. Maybe a deeper question. Is it the place you actually enjoy living? 
or do you just tolerate it? Do you enjoy the rhythm of Simi Valley or Moore Park or wherever you are? Do you enjoy that lifestyle? Do you embrace all that's going on in the city? Do you actually enjoy the city? Are you glad to be in the city or you just tolerate the city? Then there's something deeper because just like the church's people, the city's people. The city is not the city government. The city is not buildings. The city is what? People. You have no people. You don't have a city. So maybe these are better questions. Is the city that you live in made up of the people that you love? Do you love the people around you? Do you love your neighbors? Obviously, that's a biblical thing, but do you love your neighbors, like literally actually care for them? Do you love your coworkers? Do you love people that your, your kids go to school with? Do you love people in the city? And then probably the deepest question is, do the people of, of the city break your heart? When you're out and about this afternoon, say you go to lunch and like half the church does, goes to Tapo Canyon Food Court by Regal Theater, does your heart break for the people sitting at lunch next to you? going into Starbucks or in wherever they go and going to a movie, does your heart break for them? See, that's the deeper question I think that God was trying to get at for Jonah. Does your heart break for the city in front of you or are you only concerned with your comfort? See, because for some of us, when God pushes in, the collision course happens and God's calling us out of comfort and saying, listen, I'm going to mess up your life because I love people and I love you. I'm going to ask you to do things that are uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you to break up the routine and rhythm in your life. I'm going to ask you to give up things that you think you need so that you can serve people. Are you going to do that or are you going to be concerned with your comfort? Obviously, Jonah made the decision. He said, I'd rather die than be uncomfortable. So maybe we change and we paraphrase what God says in verse 11 and we read it this way. And should I not pity Simi Valley, that great city, which in which there are more than 125,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many cats, dogs, and horses, more appropriate for our city. Should I not be concerned? And that's the heart of God. And we'll talk a, a, little, bit, a little bit about what that looks like specifically in the next point. So, if those things are true of us, then what's happening is there's inside of us we're callous to people around us, just like Jonah was. And we can laugh at Jonah in his, in his ridiculousness, but the same thing can be true of us in the city that we live in. So God calls us to be people who actually live in his compassion. What does his compassion look like? We also see that in the story. Jump over to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The first thing that God's compassion looks like for people, his love for people, is a sent person. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is after the whale incident, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So he gets the message after his whole encounter with the whale. He goes with the big fish, and he's gone. So he's headed, back, headed to Nineveh, where he was supposed to go the first time. So what does Jonah become? He becomes not just the prophet. He becomes the reluctant missionary. Sent by God to a group of people who need to repent to turn to God. That's Jonah. Did you know that's all of us? And I don't know how many times I'm going to say this, but it's amazing how it comes up in conversation. Everybody always says, well, missionaries are people who go to some strange land and eat strange food and try to speak a different language and a different culture. No. You said yes to Jesus. You are a missionary automatically. And the reason that we know this is true is because Paul made it pretty clear in his words in Acts 17 verses 26 and 27. Listen to what Paul said about the way God works. He says, And he made, talking of God, from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What is Paul saying in Acts? He's saying all human beings, for all time, don't pick the times and the places where they live. God does. If you live in Simi Valley, you're not here because you chose to. You think, you think you're here because you chose Simi Valley, but God chose it for you. He also chose it for your neighbor and your coworker and the person you sit next to at school and the, the person on the other side of the, cu- the cubicle that you share. God chose that for one reason, so that people would seek and reach out for God and that they would find him. That's why. So what does that mean for all of us? That means you're a sent person, whether you know it or not. God chose for you to live where you live, to work where you work, to go to school where you go to school, to be in the family that you're in. Why? Because you are a missionary sent by God to be somebody who displays and shares God's grace and mercy for humanity. All of us are that. All of us are. And I love the way that ESV translates the phrase. It says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him. Did you know that our city is filled with people trying to feel their way towards God? They're trying to find him, but they haven't found him yet. And it's evident in everybody's life. You can see it anywhere. Think about people that you know that don't know Jesus. There are things and huge indicators in their life that display for you and I, they're trying to find their way to God. And meanwhile, God has positioned you right next to them to help them find him. So let me just, I'm not going to share any names, but in case you know anybody that I know, but, but of, the, of my friends in our city who don't know Jesus, I can tell you, it's all over their lives. They are trying to find their way around their life, and what they're looking for is an encounter with God that they haven't experienced yet. But God's positioned me as a friend to them to help them with that. So for example, some friends of ours, coupled, both come from divorced backgrounds, both had horrific first marriages, and now they're living together because they don't want to be married again because it was such a bad experience the first time. Thinking somehow that will be the solution. We'll just live together. We won't get married. This will be great. Well, now they're in crisis with each other because they can't stand living under the same roof. And then they're trying to navigate children from previous relationships. And so in their, their efforts to make their life better, to be happy and to be content and to be fulfilled, now they're finding themselves miserable Again, what are they doing? They're feeling around for God. Single dad, I know, who has to share custody of his daughter. So he went through a divorce, and so he gets his daughter part-time. And he works a lot, but he's a single dad, so he doesn't have a lot of relationships. And outside of his daughter, which he loves and adores, he doesn't have a life. And he would probably tell you that. And so he struggles with, what do I do with myself and my time and And so he struggles in different areas of his life. What is he doing? He's feeling around for God. And then there's another another couple that we know, and and they would be like the epitome of Simi Valley. Don't know Jesus, but boy, they're living the middle-class American dream. Moved to Simi Valley to get a little bit more space. He's an attorney. She's a stay-at-home mom. They just had their second child. And they look on the outside like the picture-perfect family. But as we get to know them, cracks start to show up in their relationship. Cracks start to show up in their life. And you can tell what they're seeking after is if I do it how everybody else does it, if I have the right job and I live in the right city and I have the right amount of kids and I get them in the right schools, then all of my life will be wonderful. What are they doing? 
they're feeling around for God. Some other friends of ours, older Jewish couple, retired, sweet people, really fun people, but they're struggling with age, not being able to fully take care of themselves, and then the dynamic of having kids who don't live near them, and the tension of them needing help and not wanting to ask their kids for help, and the strained relationships that were built over years, and trying to navigate how do we live our life trying to be independent when we don't know if we can rely on our kids. What are they doing? They're feeling around for God. And I, we could go on and on and on and on, but, but what I'm wanting you to see is the people that you know are just like the people that I know. And they're trying to find God, and you are the one that knows God, and it doesn't mean that you have to be a raving evangelist. It just means that you need to be present. You need to be in your front yard. You need to be in the school. You need to be in your work. You need to be present with people and realize if I become their friend, God's going to open the doorway for me to be this, the dispenser of grace and mercy into their lives. And that's what our city needs. And I've talked about this before, a little added to it. That's the way we're going to reach our city. People are not coming to church who don't know Jesus, and I've said this, and this is why as a church we have shifted dramatically in the way that we do church. That's why community groups are so essential. Community groups are going to be the place that people find Jesus. Very rarely does it happen on a Sunday morning anymore because most people in this room right now either know Jesus or have a good idea of who he is. That's why it's so important. We don't need to draw people here. We just need to go. Why? Because we're sent people. I'll get off my soapbox and move on to number two. God's compassion also looks like, go back to chapter 1, verse 17, it looks like an unrelenting purpose. It says in verse 17 of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Why is that significant? Remember the story. Jonah says, no way. I am not going to Nineveh. I'm going the opposite direction. And then when he goes the opposite direction, the storm comes up, and then he thinks, and I'm, I'm convinced, I think the interpretation of the, the video, I think, is relatively accurate. I think Jonah thought, if I jump overboard, I'll die, and I won't have to go do that. Because he's told God multiple times, I would rather die than go to Nineveh. I would rather die than, than actually be a prophet of a God who actually forgives and loves my enemies. So in that, he's trying to thwart God's plan. He's trying to somehow stop God's will for Nineveh. So he jumps overboard, and what does God do? He says, oh no, Jonah, you're not getting off that easy. And he saves him. Why? Does he love Jonah? Absolutely loves Jonah. But you know who he also loves? He loves Nineveh. And he's saying to Jonah, even you in your sin and your brokenness and your selfishness are not going to thwart my plan for these people because I love them greater than your pushback or rebellion in your life. And some of us need to hear that today on a couple fronts. Some of you think, I have somehow ruined God's will for my life because I've failed. Really, do you think that your sin is that powerful? Do you think that your decisions are bigger than God's power in your life? You can't stop God's purpose. Look at human history. For thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, humanity has done its best effort to mess up everything. And what does God keep doing? He keeps restoring and redeeming and transforming and pursuing people and reconciling people. Why? Because you can't stop God's purpose. His love is too great. And if that's true, that means that we have to understand the circumstances of our lives and the circumstances of people around us. God is in the middle of that because no matter how bad the situation, God is unrelenting in his purpose to reach people. So at the, the lowest moment of somebody's life, 
God is in the midst of that pursuing that person, going after them. Why? Because even if they've messed up and feel like they've disqualified themselves from everything, God is still in the midst of that reaching people. And that means as someone who is a follower of Jesus, that means God has called us to be present at the lowest moment of people's lives because he's reaching out to them. When they think there is no hope, when there is no tomorrow, you and I are to be present. I don't know what, where that is for you, but I know where it is for Kim and I and for Courtney and Jordan, one of the primary avenues, is that most of you know we foster, and we, in fostering, we, we take in babies intentionally. We, we don't take in older kids, we take in babies because most of the time, the babies that we receive are, are at a place where they're the first time into the system. And that means mom or dad did something really bad. And so we end up with their child. And when a child ends up in foster care, it's always the lowest point of that parent's life. Because they've done something not only wrong, but usually they've done something illegal, which causes this whole system to trigger in that allows their child to be removed. So when you encounter a family that's had their child removed, it is not the best day of their life. It is not the best season. It is the worst. And what's happened, it's happening in our county, and it's happening nationwide, but it's slow, is that historically the system, foster care system, has been set up in such a way that it's unintentionally created antagonism between the biological family and the foster family. The biological family becomes the enemy. And so you're doing everything to thwart their bad influence on their kids, and the foster family becomes the saviors. But they're realizing this doesn't work for long term. Now, there are situations where parents will lose their parental rights, and then adoption is the, is the option for people. But there, are especially in the context that we're in, we have a mom or a dad who did something really stupid and wrong, either to their child or in life. And if somebody doesn't come alongside them to help them, they may never get their child back. More and even important than that, they may never get their life back. So it's the lowest moment. So what's happened is now there's this partnership. So for almost every child that we've had our home, not all of them, but almost every child, we have gotten to know the biological family. You've gotten to know them, and at visits, you get to overlap with them, and, and as the visits expand, you get to see them outside the context of the county. You get to know them, and to this day, we have very good relationships with two of the kids that we've had in our household, and we've helped them to see some of them come to Jesus, some of them experience the grace of God in their life, and some of them recover from the worst moment of their life, and they've seen in fact, some of them have actually said, I've actually seen how God has worked this out. You mean losing your child? Getting incarcerated? Yeah, that they could see God in the midst of that, that their child would just happen to land in our house. I don't know what it is for you, but find what it is where you're finding people at the lowest moment of their life because God's positioned you there to be his presence and his grace and his mercy in their life. Then there's a final thing. Final point of what God's compassion looks like. It looks like a great love for all people. So going back to chapter 4, verse 11. This familiar verse again, let me read it. God says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Why do you think God throws in cattle there? I can take a pretty good guess. God is wanting to underscore how deeply he values the city of Nineveh down to its cattle, down to its cows, that God would actually, all of that would be something he values. 
So we know the way that God works. The way that God works is he didn't just think, okay, well, uh, there's about 120,000. I think I'll trigger the prophet Jonah to go tell them because if they only had 100,000, they wouldn't be worth it. No, the reality of the way God works is God not only knew the number of people in Nineveh, he knew their names, he knew their stories, he knew their failures, he knew their struggles, he knew everything about them because he's God. That's why he sent Jonah, to help them to experience salvation because God's love was so deep. Here's the thing, here's the point. All Jonah could see was enemies. That's all he could see. That's why he kept fighting and saying, no, I'm not going. And if you make me go, I'm going to die. I would rather die. What did God see? God didn't see enemies. God saw human beings. He saw a city full of 120,000 human beings that didn't know their right hand from their left. And that broke the heart of God that it caused him to try to send Jonah to try to alleviate that brokenness in them. Why is that so significant? Because for some of us, we only see people in categories, or we don't see people at all. We don't see people around us because we've somehow found a way to somehow eliminate that person from the value that we might place on other people, but God places equal value on everyone. God sees people. Do we see people around us? Do you see the person that you pass by every day? Do you see the neighbor in your neighborhood? Do you see the coworker? Do you see the person sitting in the desk next to you at school? Do you see that person? God sees them. He sees them. He doesn't just see masses of people. He sees people. And Jonah couldn't see the people. He, all he saw was enemies. But God saw the human beings behind that. This is significant. This is part of, I think, what God's, I know, wanting to do in me. I think what God calls to do, it, wants to do in all of us, is he wants to break our heart for people around us. He wants us to feel the brokenness of the people around us, so it, it, it causes us to have to move, to do something. So I'll close with this, and in fact, worship team, you can come and join. We're going to close with one, one song just briefly, and then we'll conclude. My nephew's currently traveling around the world and being in a, he'll be in a number of different countries. And currently he's in India with a friend who started an orphanage there a number of years ago and they're serving in the orphanage and working with the kids. And so each day he posts kind of his experiences for the day and I look forward to that email when it comes in because I just kind of want to live vicariously through him and hear what he is experiencing. And so um, this, about a week or so ago, he, his post, I was reading through it and it just really caught my attention. And so I, I messaged him back, and I said, hey, w- would you mind if I read a portion of your post? And he said, yeah, go, go ahead. You, you can do that. So what I wanted you to, to hear from him is, is he had this encounter, this experience where, where God used some circumstances for him to see the humanity behind what was going on around him in the midst of poverty and struggle. So he wrote this. He says, yes, it is Labor Day back home, but over here in India, it is Ganesh, Chaturith, Chaturthuri, excuse me, I have to ask Sudarshan if I'm pronouncing it right. This is a holiday where they celebrate the highest god, Ganesha, a Hindu god. Today we drove around and saw the multitude of carvings of this idol. And from my perspective, it's crazy to see how much money people spend on these things. Just three days later, normally they place them into the lake. Tonight we went to the place at the lake where they are putting them in. And it was a very heavy Uh, place spiritually for me and the rest of us just the massive multitude of people who save up so much so much money over the course of a year to buy a god that they will then throw into a lake in a couple of days i do not know uh, i know that i'm very biased because of my own religious beliefs 
but it still breaks my heart for all of the Hindus. Everyone chooses their own path when it comes to religion. It just so happens that by God's grace, he chose me. When I read that, I was so proud of my nephew, but also I was reflecting on my own life. In our city, we don't have outward demonstrations of religious belief like that. But we kind of do. We kind of have rituals and routines in our city that happen all the time. And, and when those things happen, how do we respond? How do we respond to the normal life around us? This is normal life for India. What does normal life look like for Simi Valley or Moore Park or Chatsworth or Thousand Oaks? What does it look like when normal life is happening? Do we see the people around us? Does our heart break for them? Because we see the life that they're living and realize that even all of their greatest efforts, it's not going to materialize into what they're desiring. But realizing God chose us. God, by His grace, chose us. Not only to be in His family, but to, to live where we live, to experience His grace the way we experience His grace. Why? Because God loves people. He loves our city. He loves everyone. And he's called us to do the same. So as we close, I know we're a little bit beyond time, but I want to finish with a song. And here's the question we walk away with. Will you walk away rocked today or will you walk, walk away ruined? Are you just going to be overturned or are you going to be turned over so that God changes you and I in a way that we live our lives differently? Lord Jesus, in a moment as we sing this song that we've sang earlier, Lord, that Jesus, you are all around us, that you would be all around us, and that for every moment of our lives, you gave your life, your life and your death. You gave to us for every single moment, the moments we have here in this building, the moments we have at home, the moments we have in, on the street, the moments we have in our car, the moments we have with people around us. You gave your life for every single moment that you would be present, reaching into people's lives, restoring, redeeming, reconciling them, healing. Lord Jesus, that's what your purpose is. So I pray today, Lord, that you would get our hearts, you would get our attention, that we would not be like Jonah sitting on a hillside, bitter because you're actually doing what you said you would do. But we are in the middle of the city, not sitting and waiting, but actively pursuing people as you pursue them. Lord Jesus, make that true of us in your name.